All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles this week with us to Matthew 21 as we talk about Palm Sunday and the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word together. Matthew chapter 21, beginning here in verse 1, these are the words of God. And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments on them. And he sat on the garments. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Our Father and Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Christians worldwide have for centuries commemorated this day as being significant, uh, commemorated this day as being consequential, and why is that? Well, because on this day, Holy Week had begun. Jesus often told his disciples that his desire was to go to Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, uh, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, we find that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And uh, that's a curious fact because that was all the way back in Luke chapter 9, very early on in the gospel story. Perhaps our next question should be this. Why was Jesus so determined to get to Jerusalem. Why was this important for him? What would he find there? When we put together the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we compare them with the gospel of John, we find that Jesus goes to Jerusalem several times. And this wasn't terribly unusual for a Jewish man and his family to do, but why is there such a strong emphasis on this particular arrival in the synoptics? Why is this an important story to tell for Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Was it because this was the last time Jesus would go there? Well, everybody afterwards knew that that was true, but if you're reading it for the first time, you don't actually know. So perhaps that is true. Maybe that's why they emphasized it so much. This was his last uh, coming and going event here for Jerusalem. But the answer is actually quite simple. It's very basic to our theology. Why? Would Jesus go to Jerusalem? Well, that's because that's where kings go. 
That's where kings go. Jerusalem is the city of kings. Jesus is a king. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. Pretty simple. Jerusalem was central for everything in Jewish life. The resplendence of the temple, while actively being restored during Jesus' ministry, that was the place where heaven and earth met. Uh, That was the place where God had chosen to dwell. It was where he dwelt with his people. Uh, For a thousand years he had dwelled there. However, there was one problem, one problem that the disciples knew, of course. A few centuries prior, Ezekiel saw the glory of Yahweh depart the temple. That's in Ezekiel 10. So God had left and abandoned this, this great temple that Solomon had built. Yahweh was gone. And by the first century A.D., for Jesus and his disciples, the, uh, the glory of Yahweh had still not yet returned to Zion. So we have this wonderful, remarkable building, but God's not there. It was a colossal edifice made of rock, a remarkable temple that was made with human hands, and yet, despite God's presence not being there, the first century Jews believed with fervor that he would, in fact, return any day now. They were waiting for Yahweh's glory to return to the temple. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 prophesies as much even mentioning the messenger of God coming to the temple. So the Jews were waiting for that moment. Thus, Jerusalem is the place from which the king of the Jews must rule and reign. That's the base of operations for any king. The temple was there. David had been there. Uh, Judas Maccabeus had won a decisive battle there a century before the time of Jesus. Jerusalem was the center of all religious political, social, and economic life. That's why people marched there at least once a year for Passover. Surely the king would come, right? We're here, we're waiting. This is the center. This is where David was. This is where Solomon was. Yes, the history was checkered, but that's where the king would go. Now, even though the the Romans were ruling over them, the Jews believed that it was God's city. It was God's house the place where God would reign over the nation. So despite all appearances, yes, Rome's in charge, but God's really in charge. He'll come back. So why must Jesus go to Jerusalem? Why is he, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, why is he going to Jerusalem to be king? That is the answer, to be king. Most Bibles that have like a header up there that describe the passage at the top there of each section, usually they'll describe the passage as being the triumphal entry. How many of your Bibles have that, the triumphal entry? It's a pretty standard way to phrase it. Um, In the past, I've called it the royal entry uh, because that sort of, you know, what sort of triumph did we see here? Well, you have to know the rest of the story. It's a royal uh, entry. Perhaps the word triumph actually shows our cards far too early. But what is this entry of Jesus on a donkey into the great city really about? And I submit to you that we're talking about the humble entry of Jesus. Yes, it was triumphant, ultimately, because we know the story. And yes, it's a royal entry because all of the overtones are there. Jehu had done as much back in Israelite history. The kings do that. That's how you welcome a king into a city. You throw the palm branches down, you throw the coats, the garments down, and you sing and you rejoice at that moment. But this was a humble entry. 
It was a completely unassuming, unobtrusive, and meek entry into Jerusalem. Now, while there is some pomp and circumstance from the people who don't quite know exactly what is going on, the entry of Jesus into the city with all the royal overtones of the Old Testament is really just one more step on the way to the cross. We know that. It's one more step on the way to the cross, the true throne of God on earth. So he's not going to the temple to be crowned king. He's going to the cross to be crowned king. Jesus does not seize or grasp the kingdom. That's what the Gentiles do. We saw that in the previous chapter of Matthew 20. Rather, Jesus enacts the kingdom by giving his life as a ransom for many. The same city that embraced him would be the same city that sent him outside the camp to die a criminal's death. In Jesus' eyes, the kingdom will not be taken or seized or manipulated. It will be established by his own self-giving substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection three days later. Whatever expectations you have of this king, check them at the door. Whatever expectations you have, check them at the door. The son of David, who is coming, is also David's Lord, and his throne is not going to look a little, it's not going to look the same. It's going to look a little different than popular expectations. Let's look look through the text here and just kind of outline it as we go. Um, Verse 1 sets the scene. Jesus and his disciples, they approach um, Bethphage. We say Bethphage, but it gets a little funny in the Greek. Bethphage. <laughs> you emphasize the E at the end. Um, the disciples approach, and at the Mount of Olives, we know that's significant for the prophet Zechariah, and they approach this city, which was about a mile northeast of Jerusalem. So we're only a mile out from the, the great city. The steep valley of Kidron was between Jerusalem and this suburb. So Bethphage was like a suburb of Jerusalem, but there was a valley. The Kidron Valley was there in between them. Uh, It was here in Bethphage where the two disciples are told to find the donkey and the colt, untie them, and bring them to Jesus. That's in verse 2. Should the owners not understand what was happening, Jesus instructs the disciples to tell them in verse 3. What is he to say? The Lord has need of them. I've often wanted to just say that to people. (laughs) The Lord needs this, and then watch them balk at that. Quite funny. The fact that Jesus knew about the donkey and the colt isn't just a flex of his divine nature. No, Jesus is a military strategist with a self-conscious understanding of what it is he intends to do. He knows what this moment is. He understands the the consequences, and he tells the disciples to go get the donkey and the colt. The Lord needs this. Now, he is setting himself up, of course, for a showdown in Jerusalem. That's where all of this is coming to a head. A battle of kingdoms that we've already seen. Jesus plundering. He's binding Satan. He's plundering his kingdom. And Jerusalem is Satan's headquarters, so that's where he's going. Curiously enough, Jesus, in this moment in all moments really, but especially here, is self-consciously aware of the fact that he is enacting and thus fulfilling the prophecy of Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. This is the uh, prophecy for Judah. He is, Jesus is the seed of Judah. He's the one with the scepter. He is the one promised to come on a donkey. 
Lots of scripture is fulfilled here, by the way, a lot, and Genesis is one of them. Immediately, Matthew introduces us to a fulfillment of prophecy, quoting from Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9, which reads this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Now, Matthew says that what we have transpiring here was predestined to be so. Matthew sees the connections, sees the echoes of Scripture, and he knows the Scriptures cannot be broken and the Scriptures must be fulfilled. So this is a moment of the echoes of Scripture coming to any Jewish man, or woman for that matter, who knew their Bibles and knew that there's something significant going on here. In verse 6, the disciples obey their master, which is a good thing to do. We should always obey our master. And in verse 7, they bring the the donkey and the colt. They laid their garments on them, and Jesus sat on the garments. Now, it's important to note here that the the mother came with the colt so as to guide and control the colt while Jesus sat upon it. So that was the significance of the donkey and the colt together. In verse 8, we find that as they approach Jerusalem, the crowd, they too are involved in this ceremony. They spread the garments in the road, and the others that were there, they cut down branches from the palm trees, and they spread them all on the road there. And this gesture was a symbol of obeisance and submission. They themselves are effectively laying down before his conquering victory. When you lay your garments down, it's like you laying down. You are giving yourselves to this victorious king. That's the symbolism that's here. So his victory is sure. They believe in it. They're behind him. They lay their their, uh, garments down. So the scene is set. The king is being welcomed into the king's city. Now in verse 9, the crowds go ahead of him. And those who were behind him cried out with a quote from Psalm 118.25, Hosanna, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna means save us. So when you cry out Hosanna, you cry out, save us, Lord. Save us, son of David. Deliver us. Be the conquering king that you are. Deliver us. Hosanna in the highest. Now that was a common phrase used in Jewish worship and prayer. Now, the, the, the religious enthusiasm, enthusiasm of the crowd is marked by scriptural chants here. They know the Psalms. They've read the prophets. They are chanting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they probably repeated that several times. And their, their, their use of the phrase Son of David is very much full of royal overtones. They had, they had kingly expectations. And when you read this passage, you know what you should conclude. What we have here is a political rally. If you've been to a political rally, I was at one, unfortunately, last fall. <laughs> Appreciated the uh, people at the rally, um, generally. But it's, today it's showboating and it's kind of annoying, frankly. Um, but we were at the rally and people were really excited Ted Cruz gets up to talk and he spends 30 minutes decrying uh, Nancy Pelosi. Rightfully so, she needs to repent. And that's all I'll say on that. But but it's like a political rally. People get excited. There's a lot of singing. People sing at these rallies. And this is what what it was. It was a political rally. And 
we also know that Jesus is Moses because he's confronting Pharaoh by riding on two donkeys, which we'll get to later. That's what Moses had done. Except this time, Jerusalem has become Egypt. Jerusalem has apostatized. This is a place of iniquitous decrees. So the political rally set, verse 10. Verse 10 gives us a pulse of the occasion. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Note that. All the city was stirred, saying, who is this? Which is hilarious because you just cheered him on. I find that funny. Who is, who, who is he? <laughs> He's the king? <laughs> Interesting. But the city was stirred. Did some of the crowd get caught up in the moment? Probably. There's a lot of fervor that happens in these types of things. They just get excited and caught up in it. Probably some of them did. At, you know, cheering on a Hosanna. Who is he? Who knows? Did others see the donkey and the colt and realize that they were witnessing, what they were witnessing was a deeply embedded event that was put in their cultural memory? They knew, they've, they've heard of these stories. They knew of Jehu. They knew of, of David. They knew of Moses. They knew of these people. Absolutely. Some of them saw that, and they saw the symbols, and they realized what was happening. Did the others in the city not know who it was? Yes, that was clear. Now, the word stirred literally means shaken. The whole city was shaken, which, curiously enough, our word seismic comes from that. Jerusalem had been troubled. You might recall once before when the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews. The whole city was troubled because Herod was troubled. They were upset because Herod was upset. Now Jesus is coming to upset them one more time. Jesus has a tendency to upset people, and it's a good thing. Uh, he makes us quite irritable, which is good, because that way we'll part with our idols. Jesus returns to the king's city after a three-year war against Satan, sin, and death. That's what we have here. He has been in a three-year war with Satan, sin, and death. All the miracles, all the healings, that's what's been going on. And all the curses that had come upon Israel for her disobedience, Jesus is sorting these things out. And what would happen? Verse 11 answers the question of verse 10. Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is it? That's Jesus. We've heard about him. He's that prophet guy. He's apparently doing miracles. That's who he is. He's from Nazareth in Galilee, which is, you know, again, an insignificant thing. Now, is he a king or a prophet? Because now we're confused. They're calling him a prophet. Is he a king? It looks like he's a king. Well, we know the answer. The crowd knew of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, which foreshadowed a coming prophet like Moses. And here we have the clue. Jesus is this coming prophet. Everybody knew Deuteronomy 18. If you were a first century Jew, you knew. Deuteronomy 18, God promised that there would be a prophet that would come like Moses. And, and people wondered, who is this mysterious man? We know it's Jesus. But what do prophets do? What do prophets do? Well, they preach which is what Jesus does in the next section. After this, Jesus goes into the temple. He disturbs the idolatry. He preaches against the wickedness. Even, I know this is crazy, but even fashioning a whip and hitting people with it. So much for meek and mild. 
which indeed we can say he is meek and mild. Meekness is strength that is, um, it's, it's strength and power that you have harnessed and you carry forth responsibly. So Jesus is a prophet, he preaches. And his first act in the city, after being welcomed by the crowds, it's not like they went and had a banquet right away. His first act is stirring things up and making people mad. He goes to the temple and he upsets the whole thing. And he doesn't do it for the sake of just making people mad because that is something that can be done today very easily. You can just go and be a certain way to someone and agitate them. And people should be agitated in terms of confronted by the gospel, but make sure that the stumbling block is the gospel and not you, and you're just trying to get an edge on them. Jesus doesn't do that. He does it for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of truth. Everyone loves a prophet that tells them niceties. No one likes a prophet who starts meddling. Jesus comes to the city to find that it too, like all of Israel, remains in bondage and thus it must be confronted. That is the scene. So how shall we then live? Since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, our Lord has tried to keep a lid on this messianic secret. He told his disciples, and he told the demons too, to keep quiet about him. We see this in Mark chapter 1, two different times. He didn't want to be crowned king. They tried to do that in John 6, 15. He didn't want to be crowned king. Not like that. That's not how it's going to happen. Furthermore, after healing a man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees, we know, went after him. And so he withdrew from that location. Matthew 12. Um, Jesus is, is carefully picking his battles here. He went to Galilee, you might remember, after learning about the arrest of John the Baptist. That was in Matthew 14, verse 13. In fact, several times the Bible tells us that he withdrew. Oftentimes, Jesus would engage in a battle and he would withdraw. Call it a strategic retreat if you want. In order to advance, sometimes you have to pause, recalibrate, and then go. And that's what Jesus did often. Now why? Why would he do that? I think the answer is because the hour had not yet come. In the the Gospel of John, he says this often, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Here's the thing. With the royal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is now ready for battle. His hour is coming, and he knows. He's been doing battle. He's going to Jerusalem to do more battle. The war is not yet over. Palm Sunday is actually Battle Sunday. Palm Sunday is actually Battle Sunday. It's the day when Jesus decided to make his confrontation direct, calculated, and abundantly clear. It was the day Jesus went to the source of all of Israel's woes, to stand at the temple like Jeremiah and cry against the idolatry of the religious leaders and the idolatry of the people. Like King Jehu, Jesus rides on the garments, he enters the city, and he forewarns of the temple's destruction. Remember the disciples, look at this magnificent place. The stones are, are, are enormous. This is incredible. And Jesus says, yeah, they're all coming down. And they did within a generation. And that's because idolatry has consequences. Cultures must be confronted, and that's what Jesus does here. He goes straight to the idolatry. The passage is laced with royal hints, insinuations, and themes The prophecy from Zechariah is a prophecy about kingship. 
In what ways? Well, consider, consider Genesis 49 again. Finding the donkey that is tied up is finding the promised one of Judah, the one who possesses the scepter in order to rule. They all knew Genesis 49. Donkeys are beasts of burden, and they are a sign of kingship. Horses and chariots were used for war. Um, horses were used for a conquering, for advancing in, in, in battle. Donkeys, though, were used after the war as a sign of peace and tranquility. So Jesus walking in, er, into, riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but a donkey, actually says a lot. Not only is he humble, but the battle's already over. He knows. Donkeys, of course, even in biblical symbology, they represent the Gentiles, which is, of course means that Jesus sitting on the colt sends a clear message, Jesus is Lord of the world. Now, why does Matthew speak of and emphasize the two donkeys? Recall the story of David. David fled Jerusalem when his son Absalom had tried to kill him. David had to leave. David left, we know in 2 Samuel 16, he left with two donkeys. What is Jesus, the son of David, um, intimating in his arrival to Jerusalem on two donkeys? What is he saying? He's saying a lot of things, but one is the Davidic kingdom is about to be restored. Everyone knows the story of David leaving Jerusalem, fleeing because of Absalom with two donkeys. Jesus, son of David, literally of the flesh of David, a descendant of him, on two donkeys coming into Jerusalem. What is that saying? David's kingdom is being restored. In 2 Kings 9, verse 13, King Jehu came into Jerusalem on a donkey with garments being laid on in his path. Laying down garments, again, is a sign of obeisance, is a sign of submission, it's a sign of worship, it's a sign of following his leadership. Curiously, Jehu, in 2 Kings 10, he went on to, the, to destroy the temple of Baal that had been erected. So not only did Jehu destroy a temple, Jesus is coming and he's destroying a temple as well. So Jesus too, like Jehu, enters the city. He makes war against a temple of false worship. What else in the Old Testament is present here? Exodus 4, 19 and 20 reads this. And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. What we learn is that Jesus is a new Moses, returning to Egypt as a prophet to declare the arrival of a new exodus. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, having swept the land of Satan's sin and death. He has brought judgment against the curses that have come against Israel and her people. He has done the task of a prophet and a priest through preaching and healing, and now he must come into his kingship. Before he can be enthroned on the cross, he must prophesy against the city, and he does so. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is Yahweh's return to Zion, a parousia, a, a, an appearance of God in the flesh. Regarding the nature of his coming this time, Jesus is a conqueror par excellence the one prophesied in Zechariah 9. However, he's a meek man whose kingdom doesn't function like the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't come in with swords with his army. 
He comes in essentially without an army, a different type of army, of course, but he goes into the city with meekness and humility. He does not tolerate idolatry. Meekness does not, meekness does not mean you're weak. Meekness does not tolerate idolatry, nor does he acquiesce to false peace. He is there in the city to disturb the sinful status quo. He's shaking things up. Jesus is an abolitionist. Even before he puts death to death, he's there agitating, evangelizing, stirring up the false peace. But note that he doesn't use a sword. Again, that, he would explain that later to Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not like the kingdoms you know. It's completely different. That doesn't mean my kingdom has nothing to do with the world. It does. It just means it's not from the earth. It doesn't, it doesn't function like you think kingdoms do, Pontius Pilate. Rather than that, Jesus uses the sword of the word of God to proclaim repentance and judgment on a stiff-necked people. New kings, whenever they come into power, new kings always sort out the current administration, which means the Pharisees are in trouble and they know it. He goes right after them with their compromised worship in the temple complex. Peter Lightheart explains it like this, Jesus arranges a fulfillment of Scripture to confront Jerusalem with his claim to be the king, the son of David, the great Jehu, avenger of Yahweh, the greater Moses, the prophet of, of the Exodus, the true son of Judah, the scion of the royal tribe. End quote. The humble entry into the city to sort things out, especially at the temple, which is the core of idolatry, is key to understanding this text. The temple incident which comes again right after this, is a demonstration of the gospel. When Jesus walks into the courtyard and he runs the, the, the money changers out, it wasn't wrong to help people with financially making transactions for worship. What was wrong, though, is it had taken place of prayer. It had taken place of true religion. You, what is true religion? It's not just going through the motions. You know, it's, it's, it's the heart. God says oftentimes in the scriptures, that he doesn't love the sacrifice of animals. That's not what he's after. He's after the one who ought to be sacrificed instead of the animals. But Jesus comes and he demonstrate, demonstrates the gospel. It's a prophetic critique against idolatry. Jesus' ire in the temple is judgment against them, and it comes in AD 70. In referencing Jeremiah there, Jesus condemns their retreat to the temple as a place of safety and a place of safeguarding their idolatry. That's what the temple had become, not a place of worship for the nations to come in. It became a place of idolatry where people could hide their sin. And Jesus cleans it out. That's what the point of the action was. And according to Jeremiah, they have committed tremendous injustices against their neighbors in a myriad of ways. These are bad people hiding under the cloak of goodness in the temple. And Jesus says, enough of it. There is no safe haven in a temple that is rife with idolatry. And north should there be in the churches today. Shiloh 2.0 is, is upon them, and there will be no escaping the judgment that is coming, not without repentance. The very existence of the temple was now called into question by the king. Do you remember he said, this temple I'll destroy, in three days I'll raise it up. He was talking about the temple of his body. 
but he still brought judgment against that temple. The text emphasizes this battle of two temples. The temple of Jesus' body, that's going to be torn down. And if you don't go to that temple to worship in spirit and truth, then you will continue to worship at the false temple. And in 40 years, that will be torn down. And if you don't repent, you too will be caught up and you will be put to death because Rome is a fierce, fierce army. The place where heaven and earth meet is not a temple made with human hands. We need to know that. The place where heaven and earth meet is not a temple made with human hands. It's a person temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we live in light of this text? Well, one thing we learn is that true priestly ministry, true prophetic witness, and true godly dominion, the very thing Adam was supposed to do, is now being fulfilled by the second Adam, and he gives it to his newly formed people. When you come to Christ, you have his priesthood, you have the mantle of a prophet, and you are kings as well. You've been brought into that, and we thank God for it. The, the coming of Christ here in the flesh, in Jerusalem, as a man, was a process of disruption. The disruption of, and, and conquering of Satan, sin, and death, and the recapturing of God's chosen people from their clutches. Palm Sunday teaches us that our expectations are sometimes different from God's conclusions, which means that we must pay attention to Scripture. We must know the Bible. We must have that word stored up in our hearts, so not only will we not sin against God, but we'll be able to be equipped so that we can wield it in a world rife with idolatry, and frankly, wield it in a church that is rife with idolatry. People want a prophet until that prophet steps on their toes. People want to hear the truth until that truth disrupts their idolatry. People want a priest until that priest is hung on a cross, bleeding out. People want a king, but they don't want him to judge too harshly and mess with their idolatrous plans. Everyone wants a prophet and a priest and a king. Even the unbeliever wants a prophet, priest, and king. They want someone to tell them the truth, but guess what? It needs to be their truth. Have you heard that recently? Brace yourselves, June is coming. People want a priest, but they don't want someone to die for them. They want others to die for them. That's why Planned Parenthood exists. People want a king, but they know they can't do it. So what do they ask? D.C. to do it. Perhaps the greater lesson to learn is this. An invitation for Jesus to renovate the heart and fill it with his spirit is asking to have your idols toppled, your mind rearranged, and your affections turned upside down. Are we ready for such things? That's kind of what you should walk away with today, frankly, with Palm Sunday. Are we ready for such things? Are we ready to have our hearts filled with the spirit? But when that happens... The idols have to go. The idols have to go. The, the, your mind has to change and be rearranged so that you're thinking biblically and not thinking what you want to think. Are you ready to have your affections and the things that you desire for your life to be turned upside down and the priority of the kingdom to be the very thing that you, and the reason you exist? 
Because even in the church, we like to think we exist for our own safety, our own comfort, our own glory. And let me tell you, that may be the foremost idol in the church, is our own self-preservation. And that's why people think they can build the church. And they can be all cute and cuddly about it and never speak truth. They think they can be the ones to do it. Are we ready for such things? Do we really want Christ to come to us and assess us as we really are? Or do we try to hide those things? Asking for Christ to be king is asking for you to get off the throne. The big idea of the story rests on this truth. Jesus is the humble Messiah King who demands purity in our worship and fruit in our walk. When the King comes, everything changes, starting with ourselves. The reason we ask God to create in us a clean heart is because we cannot create clean hearts for ourselves. Our best isn't good enough. We really think our best is good enough sometimes, don't we? Our best is not good enough. Our righteousness is a filthy rag. We need him to come and clean us and make us new. But that cleaning can be relatively frustrating. Can we admit that? It means parting with your sins, even the ones you don't even know about. It means having a spotlight shown on your heart while the bugs scatter in fear. And listen, if you want your life to be reconciled to God, then it will have to be done on his terms. Jesus is the merciful and peaceable king of Israel who brings restoration to the people of God. But it's on his terms, not ours. The church today doesn't want what Christ wants. Do you? Which means we need to have purity in our worship. We need purity in our worship, clean hearts and clean hands. We need uh, fruit in our walk humble obedience to the king in every single area of life? Will we follow behind Jesus, making assumptions about who he really is? Or will we submit to him, follow him into the city, and dare to go with him straight to the cross? If you don't deny yourself and take up your cross, what have you anything to do with the king? That's the question I think we need to ponder. Will we go into the city with him? And will we head straight to the cross? Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious to us each and every day. We wake up and we see spring upon us. We see the flowers coming, the trees starting to fill out. We, we thank you for that reminder that through death is resurrection. And we rejoice in sunny skies and warm temperatures. We rejoice in your provision for us, the daily bread that you give us each day. We, we are incredibly thankful but we dare not presume upon your grace either. We come in humility of heart before you. The crowds weren't sure. They asked, who is this man? Some answered with partiality. He's the one that I want him to be. Some answered indeed correctly, but with misguided conclusions. And I pray that you would help us to answer that question correctly. Who is this Jesus? He's our master. He's our king. He's our prophet and priest. You, Lord Jesus, gave of your life for us. The least we could do was attempt to live and is it to attempt to live for your glory. So would you challenge us today? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.